In today's show, we're going to be taking two decades of professional money management experience to talk about the ins and outs of the most popular, I shouldn't say popular, probably the worst mistakes we see couples make with their finances. So if you're one of those people who want to make sure you're doing the right thing with your couple finances, this is your show today. It's Brian Preston, the money guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. But we're actually recording the show a little early. We are recording it a little early. And why, why are we doing that? Because Brian is traveling out to Las Vegas. Oh, the money guy does Vegas again. Yeah, I'm going out to that auto show that you and I went to, was it two years ago, out to SEMA? That's right. The yep. big auto accessory um, car show. So um, it's going to be too late for you guys to say, give me a shout out or say hello, because I will have already been there and probably on my flight back about the time this show gets released. But um, nonetheless, we're excited. Go check us out, money-guy.com, to talk about today just mistakes that we see couples make. I mean, one of the benefits for doing this professionally is that we get to work with very successful couples and families and individuals for that matter, but we get to see the mistakes that people have made, but then also the great decisions. And I, I'm hoping that from our experience, you're going to be able to take some of these items and internalize it and figure out how to make better decisions for your family. So since we have a number of them, I think the best thing to do is kind of jump in these things. Absolutely. If, if I could just give the intro, I've already given you the website, money-guy.com or moneyguy.com, by the way, just in case. I, I know I keep going back and forth with that, but we are, we've got some exciting things coming out for 2016, guys. Just know moneyguy.com is just easier to say. We're going to be focusing on that more. You can always go to the website. Just check out all the ways you can connect with us through social media, even tie in with your email address so we can keep you up to date with what's going on here on the Money Guy Show. So here's the first one, Bo. Too many accounts. I feel like we see this often because a lot of time people, uh, couples come to us and they say, hey, we need some help kind of getting our financial house in order. So we always ask them, hey, let us take a look at your accounts. It's amazing how often you can look at the accounts they have and it's almost like a patchwork of their entire work history. A quilt. A quilt. That's exactly right. They might have 401ks from this employer or a simple IRA from that employer or maybe a rollover IRA. And they end up having all of these different accounts and all of these, these different places. It gets hard to keep up with, frankly. And, and it doesn't even have to be different types of accounts. I'm always amazed. Um, I've told you, I, I, when I get somebody who comes in as a prospect and we go, oh, so you started the workforce in the late 80s. I can, I can tell based upon these investments. And then, oh, you, you had just some tech stocks here in the late 90s. You got into that, and then you've kind of ridden that trend through. Oh, and you can tell post-2000, you must have gone and started working with this company because look at your allocation has this type of holding in it. It really is a walk through time. You know, it's, it's kind of a time capsule of what somebody's life looks like. I would tell you the big thing to take from too many accounts is there is something to be said for simplifying your life. There's also, remember, everything should be working together. Mm -hmm. Your whole allocation should all be one big pizza pie, hopefully working together and you want to take advantage of the asset location. And, and what I mean by that is, and we'll get into it a little bit, but, you know, taxable accounts, try to take, you know, keep your liquidity there. Try to keep your your things like dividends and, and capital gain type holdings. So that's going to be some of your equities and your fixed income. 
is going to stay in those tax deferred. And then if you really want to stick it to the man, your favorite uncle, do the Roth assets with your biggest growth things because they're going to go grow completely tax-free. But maybe you're someone out there who says, you know what, I, I believe in this diversification. I believe in not putting all my eggs in one basket. I kind of have a pretty good feel about I know where this account is and that account is and that account is. The reason that this is a mistake that couples make is that unfortunately sometimes life happens and unforeseen things happen. Uh, and it's not uncommon for one spouse uh, in a couple's relationship to kind of be the one who's the head of the financial household. They know where all the accounts are. They know how all the money moves. But the other spouse might not be in on that. By keeping it as simple as possible and keeping things consolidated, it's much easier should something happen health-wise or unforeseen tragedy-wise and the non-participating spouse has to step in. It's much easier if you have a nice consolidated picture and if you do maybe like a net worth statement like what we say at the end of the year. All those sorts of things help you just prevent... Uh, yourself from leaving your spouse kind of high and dry. And that's a great segue. The second thing I had here on my, my notes that we put together was one spouse deals with the advisor. Yep. It's not uncommon for us to come across couples where one is the dominant financial person. And it doesn't, I mean, I will tell you, there are no trends on the sex of the person, whether, whether it's the, the, the man or the woman in the relationship. It doesn't matter who makes the money. Every family is unique. Every couple is unique on who the dominant financial person is. And all we're saying here is is that make sure that everybody is involved with the process. We've picked up a number of clients where the dominant spouse who was handling the finances was actually outstanding at it, but they had a, 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 you know, a spouse that was not as involved, and they wanted to make sure that that person had somebody that could kind of carry the torch or, or communicate with their spouse if something ever happened to them. And that's a whole reason why... You should be a team, a unit that works together on this, just so there's not um, anybody left in the dark. Where there's, a, you know, because if, if things change on a dime, you don't want your spouse going. Well, now what? What right. do I do? So that's why you got to make sure that both spouses, both parts of the team, are working with um, making those financial decisions and working with the financial advisor. And, and we think, and this is a little tidbit for any other financial professionals who are out there listening to the show that kind of do this for a living. What we see happen so often in, uh, with young, especially younger advisors is they might have a relationship with one or the other, uh, individual in a couple. So when they provide advice or design a portfolio, it really only fits that one spouse. Well, what they don't realize is if there's a husband at home or a wife at home who maybe is really risk-averse and is really nervous about the financial markets, you really need to take that into consideration when you're designing a portfolio, when you're making investment decisions, because keeping making sure that both spouses are comfortable when things get scary is the number one best way to make sure that you're able to stay on track and keep the plan going. Uh, when kind of things get a little topsy It also opens those lines of communication between the, the, the spouses, too. Um, the third thing we had on our, on our list was not saving enough for retirement. You know, um, I had a question just this week from one of our clients asking Brian, you know, how do I know when I should pay down more debt or I should save more? And here's some guidance we like to give people. Used to hear many, many years ago, back when we had defined benefit plans, pensions, that if you just save 10% for the future, you'd be okay. Well, we all know 
there aren't pensions anymore. You just don't see them as often as you used to. You also know, I mean, all of, there was a debate last week for the Republican Party, and, and throughout that debate, you heard a lot of people talking about the future of Social Security. So those things are changing and evolving. So you got to make sure that you yourself and your family and your couple, as you all look at money together, that you're saving enough for retirement. So we recommend people to save 15 to 20% of your gross income. Um, that's a great foundation if you can get into a happy, especially a habit of doing that, especially my younger listeners. If you can jump on that early and let that compounding interest start working for you, building up that army of dollar bills that work for you so you're not having to work with your, your back, your brain, and your hands, you're going to be in a much better place. So I always tell people, Make sure you are putting together a plan for saving for retirement in the future. Brian, if you have two spouses that are both working, both have access to retirement plans, but let's assume maybe they can't max out both retirement plans. How do you decide whose who's account to fund? Do you fund the higher income earners or the lower income earners? How do you make the call on where you put money when you're trying to decide on, on which ones to go to? Well, it, there's several factors that go into play. And we're going to talk about this on some of these up, upcoming tips and tricks that I'm going to be sharing. But you got to pay attention to the match. Make sure you're not leaving any free money behind. And then also, pay attention to what the investments are within the account. Because there are different structured retirement plans where you might work for a for, one of the spouses might work for a Fortune 500 company, very large plan with a national company where they have access to great index funds have access to great managed funds and the internal expenses and all the internal fees within the plans are super cheap you know you're going to look, want to look at that and then another spouse might have a plan that has a great match where you want to maximize that maximize that but have horrible fees maybe sub account fees insurance product type fees and that one you probably don't want to get too crazy with because maybe they don't have the 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 depth in the type of investments you can get so th those are the factors we kind of look at to figure out what you're going to deal with and, and who you should load up on. Um, that, that's a good transition. Our next one tip that we had was looking at couples and how they have too much cash. You know, and I think this is really a problem we had after post the Great Recession because a lot of people got scared after the, the, the big downturn in 2008 and the first part of 2009. And they said, you know what? I'm not going to get caught where I don't have a nice emergency reserves and then I'm just too scared to know where to put the money in the investment marketplace. So I'm going to load up on the cash. And then what they do, especially in a marketplace where interest rates are dragging at zero, and you know you see the Federal Reserve keeps meeting and they keep dragging on at zero, you've got to recognize that some of your money, a good portion of your money for the future, has to be invested. So I'm looking at you if you're listening right now and maybe you're driving down the road and you have a rollover IRA or you have a 401k or you have a, even a Roth account. We've seen this happen where people in their retirement accounts where they won't touch these accounts for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and then they're loaded up with cash. What are you doing? Yep. you got to put that money to work. Don't have cash in those accounts that you're counting on for growth. Now, don't mishear me. I love having cash for my emergency reserves. Make sure you have that three to six months emergency reserves. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about too much cash. I'm talking about people that within your retirement accounts, you're sitting on cash. And you know who you are. And that's one of the things that we, we talk to, to, to make sure you're not making that mistake. The next one. And this kind of ties into one of the ones we've already covered, right. Bo. One party isn't getting a voice in investment decisions. 
talking about creating problems, you know, you see all the studies that talk about financial issues sometimes can be the biggest divide or wedge between spouses. If you're not having an open line of communication and letting both parties feel like they're involved with the investment decision, I think you're setting yourself up for some hostility, Mm -hmm. some people feeling like they don't have a voice in the process, which can breed resentment. You've got to make sure that your relationship, if you're going to stay healthy, that you're both being involved with the whole design process. And it does, don't, don't mishear me. And under, I'm not saying that both people have to be dominant forces. I mean, I have a spouse that doesn't love talking about finances. Who knows why she's married to me? Because, I mean, <laughs> that dominates my brain. I sit in the shower going, thinking about what I could do financially with things. But we, we're a perfect match to each other. But I do make sure that all the time I'm bringing home either a net worth statement or updates or just points of discussion so she knows where we are as a couple on our funding objectives and our goals. Bo, you have anything? I mean, you're kind of the, you know, you're not a newlywed anymore, but still you, you're definitely on the newer side of the marriage thing than I am. Yeah, m- my wife doesn't uh, understand investments or financial markets that well. So what I try to do is I try to explain it to her from a 30,000-foot overview. Hey, this is what we have going on. This is our strategy. This is why I feel like it makes sense for us. And then I just let her ask me questions. Uh, again, her her understanding is sort of elementary. This isn't what she likes. This isn't what she's passionate about. She probably doesn't listen to this show as hard as that is to believe. <laughs> Obviously based upon these comments. <laughs> <laughs> but I make sure that I do keep her involved and make sure that she kind of understands what's going on and why we're making those decisions. I, I, I'll add a little bit more color on this and the fact that, you know, after going on two decades of marriage, my wife... She needs to have a goal. I mean, she's very goal-driven. She's not, she's not a spender, but she doesn't get as much enjoyment from saving as I do. So what I have found to be very successful, if you can create goals, I'll tell you the one that me and my wife have. Um, she knows that if we will live life with this forced scarcity, that's a word that I use quite frequently where we pay ourselves first by setting up automatic savings vehicles that creates an environment in our household where there's not a lot of money sitting and idle in like checking accounts. I create situations where it feels tight and I've gotten buy-in from my wife because I've let her know, honey, if we will do this until 45, 46, because I'm in my, you know, getting close to that age, I'm not, I'm only a few years away from it, that I think we will be able to live life an incredible future because we will have created that foundation of, of assets that will grow for us. And that's the big part I would tell you, create that goal that carrot that's sitting out there so that you get buy-in from all parties. So make sure that, that so that the, the one party isn't getting, just not getting a voice in the investment decision, but also makes it a mutual goal instead of a single goal. Um, the next one's kind of a funny one to me. We wrote down failing to diversify. Now this one is interesting to me just because, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Let me lament of what it's like to be a professional financial planner and investment manager. Is that your, is that your soapbox you just stood on? I, I am standing coming? on it. Um, it is easy in the short term to look like a fool when it comes to investments. Uh, it reminds me of the late 90s. When I'm talking about when I first came out of school was the mid-90s. And I remember being so angry when I was coming out of college just because I didn't have any money. I mean, I was broke. I was doing what I could to save my, my 10, 15, then growing it to 20% of my, my gross wages was going into savings. But I remember being so disgusted 
that because you know if you have two thousand dollars invested and you make twenty percent on two thousand dollars, you're like, yeah, that's great, but four hundred dollars ain't going to get me out on retiring early. So there was a frustration because if you remember ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, and then we hit up until March of two thousand, the S and P just cr- crushed it. I mean, just completely knocked it out of the park. I'm talking about years where we're making 30 plus percent year over year. I mean, this is back when Alan Greenspan was saying irrational exuberance. And I think a lot of people bought into, hey, markets go up, especially that S&P 500. I love me some S&P 500. Fast forward, 2015, we're coming off of 2013 where the market S&P 500 made post 30%. They made 32%. Was it 32, 34? 32 and a half, yeah. So 32% in 2013, 2014 didn't do too bad. Mm -hmm. 2015 has had volatility, but here's what's interesting. When volatility has hit our markets, you know what one of the better performing asset classes has been? It's been S&P 500. And then as the markets recovered here in the month of October, guess what did great and pulled out of the S&P 500? I say all this to lament. That's right, I use the word lament. If you're a diversifier of assets, you look like a fool. But here's the good news for all my patient investors. Trees don't grow to heaven. And just like we saw in the mid-90s all the way up until March of 2000, that asset class that looked like it could do no wrong all of a sudden started dragging the bottom. And then other asset classes were now the top performing asset classes. It'll happen again. Mm -hmm. It will. And I know this because I've been through it and I don't want my emotions and how good it feels to be in that just one investment. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the S&P 500. You, you guys know I'm an index investor on what I consider efficient markets because I love capturing those low cost and expense ratios. But that doesn't mean I put everything into that. So that's the one thing. Please understand diversification will be your savior when markets get really ugly for an extended period of time. And so that's one. So obviously investment diversification is one one area that we see uh, spouses kind of fail on. One thing that we see a lot is, is if there's one spouse that's a primary earner and they work for a large corporation, maybe it's a Fortune 500 corporation here, here in this country, uh, we see a lot of couples that inadvertently, by no fault of their own, it's more of an error of omission than an error of commission, end up having a lot of their financial capital tied up in their company stock. Now, there's nothing wrong with owning the, the stock of the company that you work for, but be very careful to own too much because you don't want to have all of your financial capital and all of your human capital tied to one com- company because if something happens in the economy and there's a downturn, not only might you be at risk of job loss because of the etern- economy's turned down, your, your financial portfolio could also get hammered. So make sure... Uh, if you're in that situation, you're mindful of how concentrated your portfolio has become. And then well, another diversification area that we don't often hear people talk about that we see a lot with couples is tax diversification. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for two spouses who are married to put all of their savings into 401ks or employer-sponsored plans so that after thir- 20, 30, 40 working years, they have become what, what we call retirement rich. And I'm, I'm doing air quotes, but you guys can't see me. Uh, <laughs> He's doing the rabbit ears. It's called retirement rich because all of their liquid net worth is tied up in tax-deferred qualified accounts. And now, that's fantastic. Building up tax-deferred assets is an amazing thing. But just know when you get to retirement, 
and you go to pull that money out, you have to start paying taxes on it. And then when you get to age 70, you don't get, even get to choose how much you pull out. The government's going to tell you. So we like to see couples, as they're kind of working through the accumulation phase, begin to build up uh, assets in three distinct tax buckets. There's your tax deferred. Those are your uh, traditional IRAs, SEP IRAs, 401ks. Your tax-free, uh, which is Get Roth right. IRAs or possibly Roth 401k. Um, if you're someone who qualifies to contribute to a Roth IRA or if you're someone who knows other strategies to build up Roth assets. And then there are your taxable assets, your after-tax um, regular brokerage accounts. If you can build up all three pots of those, uh, all three of those pots, when you get to retirement, you literally can pick and choose what you pay in taxes, and that is an incredibly liberating place to be. So, if I could summarize, we want to talk about the when we talk about diversification, it encompasses asset allocation diversification. It talks about Asset location diversification, meaning on how taxable your money will be so you can manipulate, hopefully, the tax code in retirement. And then the last thing you talked about was just diversification of where your money's coming from. You know, don't tie your human capital into the same place of where financial independence is coming from. Great, great thing. I mean, as a, truthfully, we could do a whole show on just failing to diversify, but I think that was a good overview. The next one I kind of wanted to talk about is skipping account maintenance. Man, there is so many ways we can talk about. Let's just go through some of the tools that need to be in your toolbox of keeping your accounts going and working well. Rebalancing. If you guys aren't at least making sure that your asset classes aren't getting wackety-womped, I mean, willy-womped, I mean, what do you want to call them when they get all wompity-womp or, you know, when they, they're just not right? I don't even know the vocabulary you're losing right well, now, <laughs> but I think it's fantastic. Cattywampus. There's another one. We could just we. I want to get that womp in there to show that sometimes. And you know what the womp is, don't you? No. Have you never been had like a wagon wheel where, or maybe a big wheel? Maybe you have to be my age where you know what a big wheel is. Where you use your big wheel, the way you stop a big wheel is you just quit pedaling and then you slam on the brakes and then it drags on the concrete. Well, the problem with dragging a big wheel and using the brakes like that is that it creates a flat place in the plastic wheel that's the big wheel. And then as you drive it, it womps. It womps as it goes around because it's out of balance. And that's the perfect thing. That's on the fly, Bo. That's, that's why this is not for the faint of heart. I'm impressed. So skipping account, amount, account maintenance. And then I screwed up with that. And skipping account maintenance and the fact that you got to make sure that you're rebalancing. Hey, when you have a downturn like what occurred in October, well, not October, but in September and August, Make sure you're harvesting tax losses. Mm -hmm. And then here's a big one. All life events, whether it's marriage, birth, divorce, or death, look at those beneficiary designations. Absolutely. Are you doing the account maintenance that's going to keep you in the right place of making sure that you're ensuring that things are going where they're supposed to? And those beneficiary designations are powerful. Don't think just because, hey, I got a new will made last year. That's going to cover those things because a lot of those assets – don't care what your will says. They care what those beneficiary designations are. So make sure you're doing the account maintenance. That's so important. And that kind of transitions into the life planning of what happens with inherited assets. Here's another tip that we see mistakes with commingling inherited assets. Now, let me go ahead and put this out there. If you're, uh, somebody passes away, that you're a family member, and you inherit 
you know, an immaterial amount, say it's a $10,000 inheritance, which is right. still decent sum of money, sure. but it, there's nothing wrong with you bringing $10,000 into the joint account and losing that preferred status or protected status that the inherited property would have. But I do tell people, uh, if, if somebody is inheriting a decent sum of money, a material sum, right? you know, there is a protected status if you keep that as an individual asset because it's family property. And, and you have to just know within your relationship what is appropriate. But I think it's just important to know that there is a difference in legal status if you you know, Bo, for instance, if you had, or let's take my wife. Sure. My wife inherits, let's just make up a number, okay. half a million dollars. Okay. Um, if she inherited a half a million dollars of, you know, taxable money, maybe it was a life insurance policy or something like that, if we put that in her name, if we got divorced, that's her money. I have no claim on that because it's family property that transferred to her. If she inherits that money and then puts it in the joint account, it commingles it, and there could be some issue with that later. And Brian, we always get the question whenever we mention this. Well, guys, isn't that planning for the worst? Aren't you just assuming that marriages are going to end in divorce? Why don't you believe that it's going to last? Why don't you believe that you can go ahead and commingle it and you're not going to have an issue? And, and I'll tell you, I'm married forever. However, I just respect my father-in-law or my mother-in-law. You know, I know what it took for them to create the money that that my wife would inherit. So I'm just respecting that. But uh, every family is different. I just want my listeners to know that there is a difference and just to be careful with commingling of things um, because there is a different structure legally for those type of assets. Um, The next tip I had on here and, and try not to make the same mistakes is investing in things we don't understand. I think our industry, the financial industry, is guilty of trying to spin the head of the average investor and then pin the tail on the the, the donkey. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you, not to, not to be bad, but you can figure out who the donkey is in the relationship. And that's one of the things, if you don't understand an investment, you know, I, one of our favorite shows we ever did was Bringing Simple Back. Yep. And I think it's one of those things where when you get into all these, think about the Great Recession. What happened there? I mean, ultimately, there's a lot of facets to what caused the problems, but you cannot help but have the conversation and think about all those mortgage products and all the complicated calculations that were going in to create these black box type investments didn't have something to do with it. And people were just blindly investing. And it's the same thing with Bernie Madoff. I mean, how many times do we have prospect meetings where people say, well, how do I know you're not Bernie Madoff? I mean, you have to understand what your investment yep. person is doing for you. If they are always making money, even when the market goes down and they make money, unless they can tell you what strategy they used that was contrarian to everybody else, I'd be suspicious. If it seems too good to be true, it very well could be. So just pay attention to, to making sure you invest in things you kind of understand the fundamentals to. And this is, this is just a, an unfortunate truth that exists in our society today, um, a, lot of, a lot of marriages in this country don't last. And I can't tell you how many times we've seen it where someone will come to us or uh, we have heard of family members or relatives who have had this happen where they were married, the other individual is the one who handled all the finances, uh, and so the spouse who was kind of hands-off would just sign whatever they were supposed to sign. Sign it, fill it out, do the paperwork, whatever without really asking any questions, without really knowing what they were doing. 
And then when the shoe drops, they realize they've kind of gotten themselves into a pickle by not really paying attention to what's going on. So um, you as a spouse who's not involved have a responsibility to, to, to at least understand the strategy. Anytime, anytime I have my wife sign paperwork that has to do with our financial situation, I make sure that I explain what it is and I ask her to repeat it to me. Hey, this is updating our beneficiaries to include our daughter. That what? sounds like a bundle of fun. Oh, well, come on, I do it in a much more fun way than that. <laughs> but I at least want her to understand the. Does she get to keep doing. the pen when when she leaves? Yeah, she does. She does. <laughs> I I leave a lollipop too with it. Um, but make sure you and, and and if you're the one who I carry the responsibility that if one day I'm not here and my wife is is here by herself, I want her to feel like I've at least done a little bit to help educate her on what we have going on and all the stuff that she's involved with. Um, I, I'll transition because we're getting close to the end of the list here. I wanted to kind of, we, we had two more on our list that I'd written down is um, advisor conflicts of interest, Bo. Mm-hmm. You know, and this one, I, I'm going to go ahead and tell our listeners, let's go shock them. I'm going to go ahead and admit that we have a conflict of interest. No. Yeah. I mean, I, everybody who, if anybody who works with you on a financial side has some form of conflict of interest. And the best thing you can do is just to ask your advisor, hey, do you have any conflicts of interest? Are you, and, and here's a word that you really probably ought to understand, the word fiduciary. Okay. A lot of people don't understand that there's two different standards that are used in investing. There is the fiduciary standard, which means that your advisor has to put, is legally required to put your interest ahead of their, their profit motive. You know, you have to be put in front or you legally can come after them. That's, that's what your registered investment advisors will typically have to do. Um, I worked as a registered rep for a few years, and you know I was under a broker-dealer. Broker-dealers have a different set of standards. They have what's called suitability standard. Um, suitability standard just says, hey, do you qualify for the investment? It doesn't necessarily have to be the best investment, meaning that your interest does not have to be before their interest of trying to sell you the product. It just has to, you have to be suitable. I mean, a completely different thing. So make sure you understand the conflicts of interest. So let me go ahead and tell you, I'm fee only. You want to know what my conflict of interest is? Without a doubt, if you come to me and you say, Brian, love being a client. You've done a great job, but I'm trying to figure out if I should pay off more debt. I make more money if you don't pay off the debt because, you know, I get paid by what we're managing of your assets. But here's the thing. I'm always very upfront with my clients. I tell them my core philosophy on debt payments I even tell them, hey, let's talk, let's come up with a plan. As long as you're matching all your retirement savings and you're meeting those base level needs to reach financial independence at this point, like you told me you would, let's get aggressive with paying down debt. There's nothing wrong with being completely debt free when you hit retirement. Yep. So I, I, I kind of embrace the conflict and then let the client know what's going on. And I would, I would encourage you, if you work with an advisor, try to understand their business model mm-hmm. so you know if there are some inherent conflicts of interest. Yep. Um, that leads to the last point I had on mistakes, and this is a big one. This one kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit because it goes against free. Don't go against free. Free is a powerful, powerful concept. I mean, if you're talking about four letters that will change your life, free. And, you know, maxing out your employer matching contributions is a given. I don't care if you're in the worst retirement plan that has sub-accounts and has fees that average 2% a year, 2.5%, and you're like, what, this is a, thing's a dog. If your employer is offering you dollar-for-dollar dollar matching, say up to 5% or 4%, you ought to at least be doing 4 or 5%. Absolutely. Because it is free money 
go take advantage of free. Don't go against free. And when we're talking about free money from your employer, uh, retirement plans is, is the most obvious place you see it. But don't forget, there are a lot of times where there's free money available to you through your benefits package, whether it be through health insurance or dental insurance or uh, employee stock purchase plans or whatever you may have access to make sure that if you have a if you're in a situation where you have a job that has a benefits package make sure you understand both spouses benefit packages yep. just because uh, the husband might be a higher income earner working for a fortune 500 company it doesn't mean that the benefits package available might be better than the wife school teacher working for the local county government yep. you really have to look at that and make sure you know what's available to you, do the diligence, really seek it out, and you'll be amazed at how much free money is sitting out there. So hopefully we have done everything to rectify all that is wrong in your, your marriage with your financial life. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. No drum beats or, or cymbals have to be hit as a punchline. But I will tell you guys, we are privileged to work with clients all across the country. You know, we have clients in 29 states. We're quickly trying to turn that into 30 with some of the people, some of you guys who are listening right now. But it is a ple pleasure and a privilege that we get to work with those people. So if you do, remember our day job is we're fee-only wealth managers with locations in several states. You know, look us up. You can go check us out at the moneyguy.com website and, and see who we are. And um, if you want to take the relationship to the next level, reach out to us. You know, we, we're always looking for new relationships of people we can connect with and hopefully help them make the right decisions so that you can have the life that you have saved for and built that financial independence. I'm your host, Brian Preston. I'm joined by my, my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen. And after I get back from Vegas, we'll be back in two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>